Our scripture reading today is Mark 8, 27 through 9-1. I lost my place for a second. <clears throat> Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say this to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again, Bethany Church. Glad to be able to come and open God's word with you as we uh, head further into the, the gospel of Mark. Um, as we unpack who Jesus is, what he is, what he came to do, I firmly believe that he has something to say to each and every uh, one of us this morning. Whether you call yourself this morning a Christ follower or not, I believe he has something to say to you. We have a startling engaging, really challenging, I would even say, passage today. We've been traveling through Mark's gospel this spring and summer and now fall as we've tried to envision ourselves traveling alongside as companions on the road with Jesus Christ. Walking shoulder to shoulder, we've tried to envision ourselves with his disciples re-entering their world, a world of 2,000 years ago in this fast paced, action-packed gospel. In the first portion of this gospel, Mark has been showing us who Jesus is. Who is this man that has such an impact in the world that we're still gathered here today, 2,000 years later, still dedicating children 2,000 years later to him? Who is he? In the amazing miracles Mark has shown us and his teaching as well that he has shown us and after this morning, we're going to get to really the dynamic, I would say, second half uh, of this gospel, which begins in the beeline to the cross. We're at a turning point in this gospel. 
From here on out, Jesus is going to make a beeline to the cross, his death, and then resurrection that we'll see. Well, this Sunday, the two halves now of Mark's gospel come together. They come together, uh, the theological truths and actions of Jesus and the ramifications of those who call themselves followers today in this passage, they kind of mash up together. They mash up right in kind of near the middle of this book. We've reached, as I said, at the turning point of Mark's gospel in Peter's confession today. But like the disciples and the blind men we talked about from last week, they were growing in faith. They were growing in stages of faith and belief about Jesus. They got it, but then they didn't so much. And then they got it again, and now you will see today they still didn't quite get it. And maybe not till the resurrection did they really ever. Today we see Peter professing the truth, but clearly not understanding we're going to see. <laughs> clearly not understanding. So Jesus speaks as plainly as possible, the text says. So there'd be no mistakes about who he is, what he came to do. He must suffer, he says. And we must too. See why. And must, must respond accordingly. We're going to look at three musts today, not musty, like gross and dingy and old, not musty, but three musts, the plural of must, three musts we're going to look at today. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it open there. You'll see we got life group questions in the back today as we start again. Uh, have your text open to Mark 8. We're going to look at three musts, but first this. We've talked about this before. As we think about a must, you must do something. There is nothing more than a must that butts up against the, uh, the dominant philosophy, the dominant view of life of our day. It's big words, but the, many theologians, sociologists, and people have described our day as a day of this. Autonomous, expressive individualism. You can kind of get it if you unpack the three words. Autonomy, I do what I want. I'm my own master, king, boss. And the way I become that is by expressing my individual self. Who am I? I craft my identity. There is nothing that comes up against, butts up against that is when Jesus uses the word must. Or if somebody says, you must believe in this. Or you must do it that way. Or you must not do that. We know what's the first thing. Don't tell me how I'm going to must, must do it. I, this is how I must, you know. We, it just butts up against our dominant, really, view of the world for most people today. Autonomous, expressive individualism. We crave autonomy. No one telling us anything. We believe that that there in that, following that expressive autonomy is where freedom comes from. Follow my own freedom, uh, my own feelings, my own expressions, my own desires, my own likes, my own dislikes, and I form my identity on that. That's true freedom. Do you know how previous generations described that view of freedom? They actually called it slavery. You were a slave to yourself. You were a slave to your own vice of your own desires. If you always follow the whim of your heart, you're a slave to yourself. That's how they described that view of freedom. Really up until about the last 100, 150 years, that would have been viewed as a form of vice, what we today describe as ultimate freedom. 
a self-imposed bondage of desires. Well, today, Peter, in a way, not necessarily with this worldview, but maybe his culture's view, imposes his wish or his culture's wish upon Jesus, what they thought the Messiah must be, what they thought he should be, what they thought his plan of action must look like, and what following him must look like. Peter and the disciples put all of this on Jesus today, and Jesus will have none of it. And he shocks them with his own must and truly asks us to wrestle with his identity today and challenges us with each one of these. So let's get to our first one. Here's our first must. You must answer the question of Christ's identity. You must answer the question of Christ's identity. Every human being has to do this. Jesus is traveling on the road with his disciples to an area called uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he, he initiates this conversation with them. He initiates a discussion with them uh, to gradually again teach them, to open their eyes, because it happens that way for a lot of us, a gradual acceptance of who Jesus is and what my need is as a human being and what this world is all about. Teach them lessons about who he is and us. He's getting at uh, identity stuff his identity, by asking him two questions. Did you catch him there in the text today? Two questions. Who do people say I am? And he looks right at him and says, who do you, who do you say I am? Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? The life of Christ, the works of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, don't really leave the door open to not having an opinion about Jesus. The things he said and did were, were, were too shocking and too provoking to go unnoticed. Even secular historians of the day, Josephus, won for being one, wrote about him. Uh, they wrote about him. Even those that didn't follow him realized that, wow, something impactful has happened in history. We better record this. They did. His impact was like a giant meteor. Or think of a giant boulder. Have you ever taken a big rock and like heaved it into a, a still body of water? Jesus' impact on this earth was like a giant meteor crashing into an ocean, and the waves that came out of that were his ripple effect through history. And they're still going. You're here today, aren't you? They're still going. He's still impacting lives. Either you make much of Jesus, and you've wrestled with who he is, maybe you have, or maybe you have and you don't think much of him, or maybe you haven't at all. Either way, you've got an opinion. To not have an opinion is to have an opinion when he said and did the things he did. And to have an opinion is to what? Have an opinion, right? Yeah, have an opinion. Either way, it's a position on him. So as he puts the question to the disciples, say, let's wrestle with it ourselves. Here's what he said. Let me get back there myself. Look at Mark 8. We're going to just read a couple verses, 31 to 32. He says this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, um, actually, no, 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, he asked the disciples, and they told him, John the Baptist, the others say, Elijah, others, one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. He strictly charged them to tell no one. That first question, who do people say I am, that Jesus asked them? That question, if we were to ask that today, you'd get probably as many different and varied answers as 
Jesus got from his own disciples is he asked them, who, who do people say I am? Well, some said one, a great teacher or kind of like one of the prophets is what they said, Elijah. And they kind of mentioned and rattled off some different popular views of the day, and maybe that's you today. If somebody asked you, and you were honest now, you were honest with them, who's Jesus? You might say, well, maybe he said some good stuff or a good teacher. A wise man, maybe a revolutionary, some people portray him. Maybe a great philosopher. All true, but only partially true if we allow Jesus himself to define who he is. All true, but only partially true. Okay, he says, great. But, but, but second question, who do you say that I am? You now, my followers who've been walking with me, who do you say that I am? He makes it personal for his band of disciples. And really, he makes it personal for us too. Because that's the question that everybody has to wrestle with. Who do you say he is? And Peter, you got to love Peter, right? We see him, uh, he's, really, he's really representing all the disciples here. As he, as he pops in and he answers correctly, you are the Christ. It's the first part of his identity. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Peter answers it. He says, you're the Christ. That's his identity. The Messiah. It's who he is. How do we know? How do we know that Jesus was okay with this? Because Mark doesn't really give us too much, but Matthew in this parallel passage of the same story, here's how Jesus responds when Peter says this, as Matthew records it. Jesus answered him. You see the verses coming up from Matthew 16, 17, and 18. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. This is right after he said it. You're the Christ. Simon, that's Peter, Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father is in heaven, and I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How does Jesus respond? He's thrilled when Peter calls him the Messiah. He is thrilled when he says, you are the Christ. He's overjoyed because he's affirmed the truth of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, uh, don't say that. How dare you? Why would you say that? He affirms him. This is exactly what Jesus wanted to hear. You are the Christ. And it's something he says could only be said in truth, in true faith, if God had even revealed it to Peter. And he had. God was doing a work in the disciples' hearts as we've seen it progressively play out throughout the gospel, haven't we? They're getting it step by step. They're willing to keep going with him. They're willing to keep exploring and listening to his words. And Peter makes a huge profession here probably his greatest in his life. You are the Christ. So what is that? Why does it make Jesus so joyful? What's he implying in that term, Christ? Well, he was not giving Jesus a last name, Jesus Christ. It's not what he was doing. As some of thought, well, his name is Jesus Christ. That's not what Peter is doing here. Uh, his name is Jesus this is his name. Christ is a title. Christ is a title applied to him. A title applied to who he is, what he does. It's a title that carries an immense weight, kind of like that meteor splashing into the ocean. When Peter says this title, it's loaded with a world of meaning, like a giant meteor in the ocean. 
Here's what, here's what, let's look at a few, uh, slide here. The, when he says Christ, it really equals or means Messiah, which in their world really meant the anointed one. The anointed one. Christ is the Greek version of the word uh, from, from the Old Testament that we get Messiah. That Christ is the Greek word of that, which really means uh, an anointed one. An anointed one was an official king. They used to anoint their kings with pouring oil over their heads at their coronation. But Peter is saying, you're not just a king. He's saying, you are the king. You are the Christ. Not just you are a Christ or you are a deliverer or you are a king. He says, you are the Christ. The king to end all kings is what Peter is saying. Not just one of our many kings in line, but you are the king to end all kings. And they've been waiting for him. Since King David, many of you, even if you're not familiar really with too much of the Bible, have probably heard of David and Goliath. Uh, Since King David, he was one of the kings in a long line of kings, some good, some horrific throughout God's people's history. Since King David, the Jews have been waiting and waiting for one that would come in some ultimate superhuman political kind of uh, kingship who would destroy Israel's enemies. At this time, it was Rome. They were occupied. They were like a colony in some ways. They were occupied right now. Rome ruled there. They were oppressed. And they were waiting for this king to come and free them, free God's people for his perfect reign on earth. They were waiting for it. Even Psalm 2, you just have to look at a couple passages to see they were waiting for this type of king. Psalm 2 is a, a, a psalm about king, a king. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his, there it is, anointed, his Messiah is what that means, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who's the begotten son? Who's the anointed? We've got this psalm uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus speaking of some ultimate king to come and to be set up over Zion, reigning over God's people. Jesus comes and Peter says, you're the anointed one. You're the one being set on the hill. You're the king who has come. All their political, all their social hopes were wrapped up in that title. Every bit of deliverance they knew they needed was wrapped up in that title when Peter says it. Talk about an expectancy. Disciples were on edge. The king is here. He's come. Here's the one who's going to put everything right. But Peter was off. He was off. The disciples were off. They were close, but they couldn't see their greater need than political deliverance and social deliverance. They couldn't see their greater need and what that meant for Jesus. Yes, the political, the social, they were all, they were important as they are today, but Jesus had a different mission and he's the Messiah, just not the kind they were expecting or knew they needed. The second point of his identity, Jesus is the suffering Messiah. He is the Messiah, but he's the suffering Messiah, and that's what they couldn't handle. That's what their paradigm, their view of the world did not have uh, space for. 
That's the piece they were missing. And we'll see that that truth, it upsets Peter. The disciples are shattered when they hear Jesus' words. They're disappointed, but Jesus knows this must happen. He lays that out, doesn't he? He says, I must suffer. He lays it out for them, speaks as plainly as he can. It's like he's saying, I don't want any misunderstanding here, guys. Yes, the title's accurate. So let's talk real life is what he says to his disciples. Let's talk real life discipleship. What does that look like? Let's talk about the must of my suffering. It's our second one. Jesus must suffer, must die, must rise. That's what he says. If we take him at his own words. Look at 31 to 33 with me. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, there's that word, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. He says the Son of Man, is the title he uses, must suffer. I must suffer, he says. Many things. Son of Man is this title that Jesus applies to himself. It comes from the book of Daniel. Maybe you remember Daniel has these story about the lion's den and the furnace, but then he's got these five or six chapters of this vision of the end of the world, and this figure of the Son of Man shows up, and he's really a divine Messiah type in this book of Daniel, who comes in glory to put things right. That's the Son of Man. There's a, it's a divine title. But for the first time ever in history, first time ever, In all of history, Jesus makes the connection really clear for God's people that the Messiah will suffer. Never before had they quite made that connection. Of course, they had passages that you probably know about of a suffering servant, Isaiah, uh, and other passages about one would suffer as a servant for the Lord, but they never in a million years would have made that connection to the one who would be the king, the deliverer, who was to save them from all evil and justice and oppression. They never would have thought, how do we know? What does Peter do? Right away, he uses some of the strongest language. He rebukes Jesus. Same word Jesus uses when he rebukes the demons. Same word that's used there. He rebukes Jesus. No, 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 Jesus, this is, this is our real need. No, this is what you must do. Die? No, 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 no. No, Jesus, this is what you must do. This is what our people know. You must do this. This is our real need. But before we judge them too harshly, and we always like to laugh at Peter and judge Peter. Uh, I mean, some of it uh, justified and warranted. But before we judge them too quickly, don't we fashion a Jesus to meet our needs all the time? Jesus, this is the kind of deliverance I need. This is the problem you must take away. And if you you give me, you must give me just a little bit of that, and then I'll be okay. This is what you must do, Jesus. This is what I must be delivered from. 
We do that all the time. We know we're just like them. How can we know? Because we become angry and rebuke God when it doesn't, He doesn't come through for us and what we think we must need. That's how we know. When Jesus doesn't come through, how we know that He must, Jesus comes and says, no, I must suffer. That's what I must do. I must suffer. He's saying, I'm planning to die. Lots of people have looked at Jesus' life and history and said, oh, it got out of control, it got away from him. He's planning. It's the plan for the Messiah to die. And this goes against everything Peter had been taught about the Messiah since he was a little boy on his mother's knee. Everything. He's basically saying, everything you've ever thought about me is only partially true. It's cloudy. It's fuzzy. You're like the man from last week who sees only partially, sees men that look like trees walking. Remember that from last week if you were here. The must, he says, modifies everything in that sentence. I must die. I must suffer. I must be killed. I must rise again. Why? Because Peter had on his mind the things of man when Jesus says, I got a clear mission. Laser vision. It's God's must. It's God's mission. It's God's vision. And Peter was so off base that Jesus rebukes his thoughts. Kind of some harsh language, isn't it? He's telling him, he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, in his doctrine and his thoughts about the Messiah, was preaching a doctrine of Satan. It's really the same thing Satan said to him at Jesus' temptation. No, 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 no. Earthly power. Remember? Kingdoms of the earth I'll give you. That's what Satan tempted Jesus. Peter's doing the same thing. No, 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 you must, you must redeem this kingdom, the kingdom of the Jews. Get rid of Rome. It's as a parallel there. That's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's not calling Peter Satan necessarily, but Peter's thoughts, his mind. Peter was tempting him to earthly power when we know Jesus had a greater plan, a greater plan to suffer. Here's why, so you and I can know. True, forgiving, transforming kind of love. That's why. That's why he must suffer. Jesus wanted us to see a different love than humanity has, had ever known at that point. He wanted to show us the things of God, the love of God, who God is. So God so loved the world that he sent his son. He wanted to show us a true, a forgiving, and a transforming kind of love. And I want to show you the, each of those. Let's talk about each of those for a minute. A true love is the first one. Jesus had to suffer to show us a true love. As human beings, I don't care who you are, where you've come from, or what you believe today, I know this about us. We are wired to need love. You are wired to need love. Your heart wants to be loved. We can't live without love. It's kind of like, um, uh, like the air we breathe almost, the food we eat. You and I need love. But if we're honest with ourselves... None of us on our own is capable of giving a true love. Most of our love, and not all of it, but even our best love sometimes is tainted as a conditional love. What's that mean? I'll give you love as long as I'm getting what I want. As long as you keep up your end of the bargain, then I'll love back. If you affirm and meet my needs... So we give as long as the other is giving. 
a lot of our love is tainted with that. So we give as long as the other is giving, and we keep parts and pieces of ourselves hidden. We keep parts of ourselves uh, cordoned off. It's not very vulnerable love. It's not very transparent. It's very guarded. Part of the reason many times we're loving is because of what we get out of that back. When Jesus came to suffer and die to show us the truest love ever, the truest love ever, true love, just for the sake of the other person, doesn't need anything in return. That's how you define it. Our love a lot of times needs things in return, doesn't it? It needs to be affirmed. We need to be built up. We need to get something out of it. Jesus came to love without ever wanting and needing anything in return. You love just for the joy of the other person. And only someone like Jesus could do this. The Son of God could only show us this kind of love. Why? He's God. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. And in fact, if you think about him, hasn't he always existed amongst himself with perfect love, Father, Son, and Spirit? He's at the perfect loving community for eternity. He doesn't need us to make that love greater, to finally experience love for the first time. He doesn't need it. He has it. Only Jesus, one who has existed in that from eternity, could show it to us because he doesn't necessarily need us. He just loves us in a perfect, true, selfless love. It's the truest definition or example of love. And yet he dies to love us. He gives up the greatest gift you could ever give for somebody is to lay down your life for them, and that's what he does. He gives himself up. And when you and I get a love like that, when that becomes the central driving place in your life and you know you're so secure in a love you don't have to earn, in a love you can never lose, do you know what it does? It frees you up to begin to love that way too. It starts to free you up to be able to love without getting something back in true security that you have in the love of God. It's true love. Here's the second one, forgiving love. A forgiving love, we also need that. He must suffer to show us a true love. He must suffer to show us what forgiving love is. We also need that kind. Jesus had to, it must, he must suffer and die so we could be forgiven. Let's talk about that for a minute because that's really the most unpopular part of Christianity, really. Is that there's a God who would need to judge sin and punish his own son. Some have even called it divine child abuse. Really? Like that's what you believe? Let's talk about it for a minute, because it's absolutely critical to understand Jesus' mission. If you don't understand this, you really don't understand Jesus. I remember when I was a teenager, visiting my aunt and uncle, and um, was in their house, and they had a smaller bathroom than I was used to, and I was a big, lanky, you know, teenager, and I had used their shower, and I was drying off my hair, and it was the surroundings I'm not used to, right? And my elbow crashed right through this beautiful shelf my aunt had in her bathroom, covered with all kinds of ceramic trinkets. <laughs> and they went, where do you think? The whole shelf ripped out of the drywall. It's such a lanky, clumsy, I was a teenager, you know. Uh, knocked it out. They all went shattering onto the ground, and they were absolutely destroyed. At that point, my aunt and uncle could have done one of two things. They could make me pay for it, which is what they did. No, they didn't do that. They, did that. They, they could have made me pay for it, 
you know, for the grand total, I don't know, a few hundred bucks or something. Or they could look at me and say, that's the one option. Or they look at me and say, we forgive you. We forgive you. What'd they do? They didn't make me pay for it. They, they, they forgave me. They forgave me. They didn't require me to pay the money to make wrong, uh, right the wrong I had done. But to forgive me, actually, either way, to forgive me, either way, when they forgave, they were going to be the ones that paid. Either way. Either they went without the beautiful decoration that they had set up that my aunt had spent so much time, and they'd pay that way, or to replace it, they'd go ahead and pay the three, four hundred bucks, five hundred, whatever it was, to get it back. They were going to pay. Either way. Here's what that shows us. The forgiver always absorbs the cost. The forgiver always absorbs the cost in life. And think about it on a personal level, too. It's the same on a personal level. You have experiences in your life. You have. Uh, as someone comes along, maybe relationally, intentionally takes something from you by harming you or saying something bad about you with harsh words. Maybe they stabbed you in the back, so to speak. They steal your happiness, maybe their reputation, maybe your job. Maybe you've had somebody steal your job before. Justice has been violated. We live in a just world. We all want justice. There's a debt that has to be paid when someone does something wrong to you like that. Justice has been violated. And you can do one of two things. You can do everything in your power to get even by paying them back, by destroying them. But what does that accomplish? The problem is when you do that, what are you doing? You're becoming like them in the process, aren't you? You're hardening as they were treating you with hardness. You're becoming more like them. You're paying evil back with evil. You become like them. Or you can forgive, but real forgiveness is always costly, isn't it? Why? Because instead of making the person pay what they did for you to you, you're going to absorb the cost. You aren't going to get even. You aren't going to tear them down to get back what you lost. Real forgiveness, here's, the, here's what it is. Real forgiveness always involves suffering. Always in life. Because somebody's got to absorb the wrong. Always. Either you pay back or you absorb it. Same in parenting. Real forgiveness always involves suffering. The wrong party absorbs the cost rather than making them pay. That's what it is. So it shouldn't surprise us then when Jesus Christ comes and says, I have to suffer. I have to die. Because the only way he can forgive the human race now for the wrong they've done against God is for him to absorb the cost. That's the gospel. For him to absorb the cost that you and I deserve. Either you'll pay or I'll pay. Either you'll pay or I pay, says God. And we think, oh, that's so silly, a God who would judge sin. I mean, think about it. Some people say, can't God just go like, eh, it's okay, pat us on the head when we get to heaven and go, don't even worry about it. Would a loving God just turn his back on all the evil and suffering that's ever happened in the world and not deal with it? That's not loving either. People struggle so much with God's justice and judgment, but a love, that wouldn't be a loving God. That would be a careless God who set us up on earth and said, have at it. I could care less what happens. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible deals with sin because he's just. He has to. Either you pay or I'll pay. 
He can't clear the guilty and just say, eh, don't worry about it. Our own justice system works this way. Why would we think God wouldn't be similar? Well, I mean, it actually came from him. Our own justice system works this way. When it gets to God, we go, no, 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 no. God would not hold us. God would not hold us accountable for what we do. Why would we think that? Our entire world doesn't run that way. Either you pay or I'll pay. That's what Peter needed. That's what we must have. That's why Jesus said he must die, because in dying, he gives up the ultimate price, doesn't he? He gives his life. He gives his life. The ultimate price. It's the reason in Romans, Romans 3, have you ever wondered what this verse means? It's coming up on a slide here. Here's what this means. We're getting it? Coming? Slide? Romans 3. There it is. Here's what the verse says. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We thought, what does that mean? It's such a weird verse. Just and the justifier. What, what does that mean? Well, God has to be just. If he was a God that just closed his eyes to sin, patted us on the head and said, ah, you gave it the good college try, he would not be a just God. He'd be evil, he'd be wicked, he'd be unholy, he'd be unfair, he'd be all these things. He has to stay just. So he can't just dismiss sin. And yet he's the one who's been wronged. He's the one who's been wronged. And so he says, well, either you pay for it or I'll pay for it. That's the gospel. So he becomes the justifier, the savior, that's what that means, Messiah, he becomes that for us so he can stay just to his character and remain holy and yet say, I still love you and want to show you that love, so I'll take care of it. I'll pay it. That's what that verse means. That's what Jesus is getting here when he says, I must suffer. He stays true to his own character by punishing sin at the cross. so He doesn't ignore it. And then he justifies those who believe it. Have faith in Jesus, he says. Paul writes in Romans. That's the gospel. And when we see this true kind of love and you begin to believe it, what does it do? It absolutely transforms you from the inside out. That's what it does. It transforms you. It's a transforming love, which then I think helps us when we get to the final must. It makes a little more sense. Here's our last one. We must submit our identity and agenda to His. We must submit our identity and agenda to his. Let's wrap this up. He says in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what... Can a man give in return for his soul forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation? Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. What is Jesus saying here? What's he getting at here? It's really taking us back to where we started. Let's go back to the slide. Right where we started. We're back to where we started. Peter, you had your own agenda. Uh, the culture of the Jews, they had their own agenda for Jesus at that time. You and I, we have our own desires to be those autonomous, expressive individuals and find our meaning there. That's the message of every pop song today. 
most pop TV shows. It's the message that's flooding us every day. That is the message of our world. Find your meaning in yourself and what you declare to be your, who you are. Be you, be you. Do you is the phrase, right? Be you, be you. That's, that is autonomous, expressive individualism put in like first grader terms. Be you. We can get, all get that. You be you. You do you. That's what it is. Jesus is saying, since I'm the kind of king, the kind of Messiah who would die on a cross for you, to follow me means heading the same direction. It means walking the steps I walked. And this is where it gets a little hard for us. He says to his followers, take up your cross and follow me. Lose your life for my life. Lose your life for your sake to follow me. Some people have read this and think, when Jesus says take up your cross, his, your cross he just means this everyday suffering of life. The suffering I've been through, some of the heartache, maybe the illness I have, but it actually means so much more than that. Crosses are the difficulties and challenges that come to life by uniquely walking as a follower of Christ. That's what they are. The crosses that come to us by uniquely standing shoulder to shoulder with him, by uniquely following his agenda rather than your own. Those are the crosses he's talking about. The suffering we go through to follow in his footsteps and look like him. It's so much more than just the difficulties and challenges that come by walking. It's by walking his path, embracing him as your ultimate identity. Why? How do we know this? Jesus uses a word here when he says, you lose your life. When you lose your life, you gain your life. He uses a word, unique word, the word psyche which is from where we get the word psychology, psychology. When he says lose your life to gain your life, he's really saying don't build your ultimate purpose, identity, security, love, deliverance on anything that this world has to offer. And there are good things in this world, aren't there? His exact words were this, Mark 8, 38. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Every single culture points to certain things. You, you believe them too. Every single culture holds to certain things, points to certain things, and holds them up as identity markers. If you do this, you've made it in life. If you accomplish this, you've really made it in life. Whether it's career, money, good sex, a healthy body, power, popularity, reputation. But you put all those things together, guess what they all are? They're all performance-based. Every one of them. You do this, then you matter. Jesus tells us right there, you could accomplish and have every single thing this world has to offer, but would it be worth it if you lose your soul? Would it be worth it? You could gain everything in the world. Just look at, look at the wealthiest and the most popular and the most powerful in the world. They, their lives end up in self-destruction all the time, don't they? He says you could get all of it and lose your soul. And in fact, he says, if, if that's the path you're going to take on the final day, Jesus says, I'll even be ashamed of you because you traded the real life for the life that was only to point you to the real life. That's what you did. That's why he says we must submit our identity and agenda to his. He says, submit to my identity, my agenda. What is that? It's King Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. 
King Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. That's that last fill in there. When you and I come to embrace the gospel of Jesus, that he gave himself utterly for you, utterly. And by trusting that giving of himself on the cross, when, that, when you realize it brings you perfect security, identity, future, forgiveness, and inheritance to come, how can you and I not ultimately give of ourselves? Okay, whatever you ask, Lord, whatever you send into my life, Lord, I will accept. Because as hard as those crosses are to bear, what did he also say must happen? And did you catch it in verse 31? He also said, I must resurrect. He also said, I must resurrect. If he stopped it, I must die, it would have been horrible news. I mean, it would have been over. We wouldn't be here today. But he said, I also must resurrect. He must rise again. It means all those crosses you will bear, all of that weakness he'll reveal in you will someday be redeemed when he returns and you and I are all resurrected too. It'll all be made right. It'll all be worth it. You'll see from a grander place and go, that's why. Oh, that's why. Because the resurrection must happen too. Jesus may have began in weakness, the road to the cross. He may ask us to love and show weakness and vulnerability and forgiveness too, but how's it going to end? Resurrection, glory. Let's pray. Lord, you speak hard words to your disciples. We talked about a lot today. I probably went too long. But Lord, we know you can redeem this moment and this time and use these challenges of Jesus Christ for us today. I know everybody in this room wants love, wants an ultimate love, wants an eternal love. And yet we all know the world's broken too. We've done wrongs. Wrongs have been done to us. And if there's a true God, all those wrongs are ultimately against you if we're your creatures. And so you've made, a, made them right, though. You have made a way in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, give us faith in that, that he came to suffer. He calls us to believe it, but he rose too and is coming back for us. Give us faith in that, because it's in Christ alone that we have any hope in this world. It's in his name we pray and we sing now. Amen.